It was the year that my son died that I learned to write. My boy. My son. Was an angel. As perfect and sparkling as the white marble of the bell tower in St. Peter's Square. We let his hair grow golden and long. And in the beautiful androgyny that belongs to one too young to have more than one tentative foot in this world, my son shed light on the paving stones. My son turned brick to marble. My son turned pigeons to nightingales. We called him Angelo until he died. And after that, we called him William. Like the stone that marked his grey, unassuming grave. I had always called myself a writer, of course. But now that circumstance has made me old, I see how rarely a person speaks himself true, even in the privacy of his own mind. Like so many Rumpelstiltskins, we break into pieces at the sound of our own names. It seemed good enough for my dark, pretty wife, however, to believe she had married a writer, an artist, a romantic, a man of smooth words and dark, candlelit corners, and so wonderfully, tragically, desolately poor. She loved the idea, and when we were young I never dared pause to wonder whether she loved me as well. It was enough that when she lifted her dark, honeyed eyes to my face, she saw something she loved. Richard Fay, the artist, the writer. I couldn't blame her for it, for I was just as smitten with him. It wasn't until the sobriety of marriage that we realized that the man we both loved was as elusive as my most secret fears had always whispered. It wasn't until the breathlessness of approaching poverty that I dared to look back into those honeyed eyes and see that I had to find him, the writer, to keep my wife. And so I chased him to the sinking city, hoping to find him amidst the melancholy that saturated those streets like the water and the rats. With the novelty and freshness of a new home came a blundering hope energetic and unfocused as a large, jubilant dog. Things were well for a time. My wife became happier. And soon after, she brought my golden son into the world. The very sun of my days seemed to grow brighter with every languid opening of his pale eyelids and every fiercely joyous fist he made with his little white hands. And so we lived, Angelo grew so he could totter along with us to the square, a bright light between two shadows, and revel in his own voice. I worked some, and in the evenings when I had finished chasing my son, I faithfully returned to the candlelit corner and chased again for my hidden artist. I looked for him, sometimes all night. Sometimes my pencil would follow him, tailing him mercilessly, desperately, tracing at his heels down labyrinths of words, serpents of idea after idea, each choking the one before until perspiration and fatigue made pencil and mind slip, losing him 
somewhere between what had been written and what was to come. Other times I merely looked, but never saw, and all that looked back was a blank page. When I did manage to translate a paragraph or two from the sputtering of my brain to paper-speak, it floated above the page. Whatever I wrote was trite, surreal, it meant little. In a world of stone and oceans, it seemed written in grey, blown off the page by the sob or laugh of one alive. Some mornings I would raise my head from my writing to find my wife, fully dressed, with young Angelo tucked into breakfast, wondering why and how the night had gone. But I remained patient. I took a job at a bakery, and found there what I could not find with pen and paper. The work was simple and true, with the gratification of holding the fruits of one's labor firmly in one's hand. I found it honest, somehow, and where my mind struggled to press ideas, my hands and arms succeeded in kneading bread. From every effort came something beautiful without fail, something tangible and true. It refreshed my mind to pull away from the dark, troublesome complexities I sought to find and expose to the world in ink, and rest my eyes on the simplicity of the morning venture for bread. The first was an epic quest for truth, like Odysseus sifting through the deception of Ithaca. The second was a rest from such struggle, in the banalities of everyday life. I even grew to know the faces of my regular customers. The young woman with dark glasses and a ready smile, for instance, who had two loaves of dark rye every morning before seven. Or the bushy-haired man who slipped in every other day or so to buy a pastry for his daughter, a quiet, pale little nymph trailing behind him, clutching his hand. He often chose out of our sweetest, most ornate treats, the kind reserved for those with more lenient wallets. I slipped one of these quietly into the bag beside the bread, when poor Mrs. Seven O'Clock Rye arrived one morning with a smile and a broken wrist from a bad fall down some rain-slicked steps. I loved them for their simplicity. Frustration, however, still came quickly and easily to me, like a dark cloak sweeping before my eyes when I paused in my work, or when the bakery door swung closed behind me and I ventured home. The way was long and often wet, with misty rain congesting the streets and dirty rivulets running between the paving stones and down the sides of huddled buildings. The very ground itself seemed to hiss moisture, breathing it up through shadows to swirl around the feet of passers-by and saturate what rain couldn't reach. There was a constant smell of decay, one more insidious than that of rotten timber. A citizen here felt as one standing at the edge of an endless shadow, perched sullenly on the brink, and feeling the pull of an inevitable slide. Some days I could rush towards home fast enough to save my soul from the cold, but other days the damp, ruthless misery held me like a gloved hand over my nose and mouth, 
dripping between my shoulder blades and between my ribs to settle on my heart. Hopelessness racked me like an evil-sounding cough. It was on such a day that I found myself passing the cathedral, three shades lighter in a sea of grey, and that I found myself in her gaze. As I look back, I realize that every day that I encountered her was such a day.